Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, if you will. We are in chapter 2. We continue this morning in our series, The End is Only the Beginning. It is a look at biblical eschatology. We are looking at the events of the last days. Undoubtedly, a crisis like the coronavirus um, certainly propels our interest in asking questions concerning the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible has a lot to say about the days just prior to his return. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to understand that our heritage as Christians is a lineage that waited with great anticipation for the return of Christ in their day. And 2,000 years later, we can say for sure that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. But certainly a crisis like the COVID-19 virus, the results of the pandemic that spread throughout the entire world, the entire world coming under the authority of one organization, as we saw, the World Health Organization, certainly gives us a moment of pause to ask questions and to see the reality and probability of the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the one world government that will reign in the last days. This one world government will be led by an individual that we are talking of this morning. He is known as the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. You and I more uh, acquaint him more with the term the Antichrist. An individual that will raise up in the last days, rise up in the last days, I should say, to lead the world through a seven-year period like the world has never seen before. Those seven years are outlined for us in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. This individual is the individual that will deceive the world for three and a half years, and then something radical will happen. It'll appear that he is mortally wounded. It'll appear that he has died. And on the third day, it will appear as if he rises again from the dead. I think someone else has done that before, haven't they? And the world will hail him as a deity at that point. But the Bible tells us clearly it's at that point that Satan fills him. And he propels the world for that last three and a half year period of that seven year period into the darkest time of human history called the Great Tribulation Period. And again, you can read about the details and the events of that period in the book of Revelation. Let us begin by starting at verse 1, and we'll work our way through our text. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's referring to His second coming, and our being gathered together to Him, that is the rapture of the church, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The church in Thessalonica believed that they were in the great day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that period of time where God judges the world and also restores the world to its original state. It's a period of time that is promised throughout the Old Testament. 
and that we are getting closer to each and every day. But Paul made the Thessalonican church a promise in 1 Thessalonians when he said that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, will not experience the wrath of God. And apparently, through a forged letter or some type of spiritual communication or a spoken word, they were told that they were currently in the Great Tribulation period, the day of the Lord. And now they're wondering if Paul had lied to them. And this is what caused them to be shaken in mind and alarmed. But Paul eases them and their hearts and reminds them that certain events must take place first before the fulfillment of that time. He reminds them that they are not appointed to wrath, but to be rescued. And in verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, of course, we're talking about a period of time rather than a single individual day at this point will not come unless the rebellion comes first, what we know as the apostasy, where individuals who believe they are Christians, who have never been born again, who have associated with Christians throughout maybe their entire lives, and yet they themselves are not truly a follower of Jesus Christ. They haven't been born again. Jesus spoke of these people. In Matthew 7, 21, when he said, there will be a time when people will stand before me and they'll say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? Every time I quote that verse, I just hear my mother because she always used to say that to me. You know, I think it's one of the reasons I got saved. She was always pointing me to the Lord. But right before she was about to correct me in some way, she always go, Lord, Lord, you know, pray, praying for that grace before she let me have it. Um, but... Notice his words. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things in your name? And he talks about various activities that they participated in. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never were truly born again. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. It must be a personal decision that one makes. A decision to repent and to believe on the risen Jesus Christ for their salvation. It's an offer to everyone. And anyone who will reach out and claim that offer and receive that offer shall be saved. It's not exclusive. But there are many who still today, who attend church faithfully, They may read their Bible. They may even pray, but not have that relationship with God. In fact, Paul tells us that the last days will be characterized by people who act completely contrary to all that the Bible stands for in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says perilous times will come. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Perilous times will come. And these individuals will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. And they'll have a form of godliness but deny its power. These individuals. We know in Jesus' own day when he walked this earth, many associated with him. They were amazed by his miracles. They were uh, moved by his compassion through the food in which he served them. But when he began to teach and when he began to show them that there was a cost to discipleship, that sacrifice was required, 
When he made his statements such as, take up your, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. These were crowd-thinning statements. And many departed from him because they no longer desired to follow him. But when Jesus turned to the twelve after that, he said to them, he says, do you want to leave also? And Peter said, where else, where, we'll, where we will find the words to eternal life other than through you? We know that Jesus told us that there would be a field there filled with wheat and tares. They look the same. They're hard to tell apart. But at a moment in time, they will be separated. When this lawless one, this individual, this man of destruction, this son of perdition, this, this Antichrist rises to power. He will lead those who are not truly saved and born again away from God into eternal destruction. And Paul says, understand that this rebellion, this apostasy comes first. Then the rise of the man of the lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Verse 4 who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The pinnacle of the mission of the Antichrist will be the moment that he enters into the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he will enter that temple. And he will raise an image unto himself within that temple. And he will claim to be God. This will all occur after that mortal wounding, that time that he is, appears to be dead those three days, and then after his apparent resurrection. Let us understand that Satan is not a creator. He's a counterfeiter. God is the ultimate creator. Satan just counterfeits that which God has already done. Satan filling this individual, he will then demand to be worshipped as a god. Now for the Jewish people reading this, and those living in Thessalonica, this was all too common to them. For they understood that the Roman emperor himself uh, believed that he was a god, a deity. In fact, the coins that represented Caesar Nero on the reverse side of them had a statement that said in Latin, Son of God. So these emperors believed that they were deities. They raised temples for themselves throughout the region of Asia Minor, there was one of those temples in the area of Thessalonica where this church was located. He was the ruler of the world. He saw himself to be a deity. He demanded to be worshipped as one. Many new Christians suffered and died due to the fact that they would not bow the knee to this false Christ, this false deity. They lost everything as a result. So when Paul writes these things, this is all too common for them. But woven in all of this is the oldest lie that ever existed. 
A lie that translates all the way back to the Garden of Eden itself. In fact, the lie was conceived and germinated in the fall of Satan himself. Satan fell from heaven because pride filled his heart, the Bible says. And as a result, he desired to be worshipped and sit on the throne of God himself. God cast him out of uh, heaven and out of that place of prominence within the hierarchy of angels. For Satan was, as the Bible calls him, a cherubim. And he was cast down and took a third of the angels with him, which we now know today to be demonic forces. That lie, that desire that Satan had was what constituted and contextualized the manner in which he approached Eve in the garden. He said to Eve, challenging her on her understanding of what God had actually said, tempting Eve by saying that God knows that if you eat of the one fruit that is supposedly forbidden to you, you will be like God. And to the fallen heart today, that is still the quest of many, even though they would verbally, I believe, deny it. But Eve believed that there was something more to be had outside of God's perfection. And as a result, she then was convinced by the serpent, who Revelation itself calls the devil. And as she was tempted and she ate, her eyes were then open and she knew good from evil. Yes, she had become like God, but she had also died spiritually due to her disobeyment to God. Now this is very important to understand our text this morning. The lie is consistent. And the lie continues today. The other event that... I love it. I'm 52 and my voice is still cracking. You would think that I've gone through that period of time already. It's just amazing to me, you know. I, I don't understand it. It's like, you know, God, am I not finished yet? I know I feel young inside, but... I don't know how we get off on these things. It's amazing to me that the events of the Old Testament, as they begin to unfold, when you think about that initial temptation and that initial fall, there's an event that takes place in the book of Samuel that you may have never equated with your study of the person of the Antichrist of the New Testament. But it lays the groundwork for the mindset and the mentality that I believe is uh, being produced today and being prepared and staged today for his arrival. I'm referring to the fact that at one moment in time, Israel told God that he, they, didn't no, they no longer desired him to be their king and their leader. They wanted a king physical king, just like everyone else. It is interesting because God warned them of what would occur. God warned them of the depravity of man's heart being put in a position such as that. 
what they would experience, the heavy taxation, the unlawful executive orders, and other things. But they demanded that God gave them a king. Someone that they could see and someone that would appear to be like every other nation of the world. Did God want Israel to be like every other nation in the world? Today, we as Christians, we don't wrestle with this same um, understanding because we as individual Christians know that we are governed by God individually. But there's always something waiting to usurp the authority of God within our personal lives. I think it is interesting that it is well documented now that each and every single time God has been taken from the the consciousness of a nation, a vacuum is created that is always filled by the exact same thing, the state, the government. This idea... This concept, Israel had the ability to be unique and different to allow God to govern her as God desired to govern her, but they wanted a king instead and they got what they deserved, King Saul. And you can read about that in First and Second Samuel. But Jesus in the New Testament said to, his, to the Jewish people, I come in my Father's name and me you reject. But another will come in His name And you will receive him. You and I are witnessing the stage being set globally for the arrival of this individual. There's a vacuum being created now where the vast majority of people believe that the current systems of government throughout the entire world are so corrupt that they must be done away with. They are clamoring and crying out for one that will unite them politically, unite them economically, unite them uh, through their religious worship and through their religious systems. They are looking for an individual to rise above the current corrupt systems that we have throughout the world. And to display some unique characteristics and properties and abilities so that they may look at him differently. Today, when evolutionists talk about the progression of man in the evolutionary system, many have left the path of simple physical evolution. Meaning we're not going to grow another arm or another ear or another eye through the evolutionary process because often these scientists believe because we are in a stable environment that our oxygen is consistent and there, you know, the pressure is consistent and gravity is consistent. Physically, we aren't going to evolve any further than we currently are physically. Many believe this today. Though they will absolutely refute the understanding of a supernatural world, many believe that the evolutionary process is taking place in a metaphysical manner, 
a spiritual manner. That we are becoming better people as time goes on. I don't know what newscasts they're watching, but that certainly doesn't seem to be the case. But many want to tell us that the evolutionary process is now taking place on that metaphysical level. We don't see it as much, but it is taking place. Bringing us to what we may consider one day to be a deity in and of ourselves. I believe that the Antichrist will deceive through the signs and wonders that he brings forward. In fact, I don't even have to guess. That's exactly what our text tells us. I believe that he is going to fill the vacuum, that void that people are looking to fill. And to do away with the current um, forms of government throughout the world when it's so interesting, the one form of government that carries with it intrinsically uh, within it a Judeo-Christian worldview is the Constitution of the United States of America. Is it any surprise that people hate it? And is it, will be any surprise to you if I tell you that eventually people are going to move their attention from a political party, the Constitution, United States history, and realize that the bedrock of all of this is Christianity. That's where we're moving to. It's only a matter of time. Not only did Jesus tell the Jewish people that they would receive one who comes in his own name, but in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, he refers to an event that I believe is the event that Paul is speaking of here, the event where the individual will raise an image of himself and demand to be worshipped as a god. Jesus called this event in Matthew 24, 15 through 16. He called it the abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The concept of the abomination of desolation originates in the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26. It speaks of an event that takes place that will be the access of what happens during a seven-year period of time that is outlined for us in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it tells us that the seven-year period will start when one from this new arisen empire comes and makes a treaty with the nation of Israel. He then breaks that treaty halfway through that seven-year period of time and begins to demand himself to be worshipped. This event, called the Abomination of Desolations by Jesus, in Matthew 24, positions the readers and those who are listening to look forward to this event. Now, this is important for our discussion today. Many today will tell us that the events spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 
are events that have been fulfilled through the person named Anicus Epiphanes. His real name is Anicus IV. But then he added Anicus Epiphanes after his name. The word Epiphanes means a deity unto God, a deity that is meant to be worshipped as God. He went into the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. This is where the Maccabean revolt comes into play. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 11. And he demanded to be worshipped and he slaughtered a pig on the altar, which defiled the altar. And people then say, well, this was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And if we didn't have this verse by Jesus, it would be easy to conclude that that is correct. However, though, the event of Anicus Epiphanes IV took place prior to Jesus saying this to his disciples in Matthew 24, 15 through 16. Meaning that that event couldn't have been what Jesus is pointing to because it's already taken place. But he tells his readers, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, just so there's no confusion of where we're getting that from. No, Jesus is looking on into the future. The short-term fulfillment, Anicus Epiphanes was a type of the Antichrist. He was similar in many different ways to the character of the Antichrist, but the one in whom Jesus is anticipating ultimately is still yet to come. He is still yet to come. Now, there are those who want to say that this was partially fulfilled through Claglia and others. I think those debates have been shown to be inaccurate because they don't fulfill the prophetic fulfillments that both Daniel and Jesus and Revelation uh, require them to fulfill. No, I believe that Paul and Jesus and Daniel are all speaking of the same event that will take place in the future that will take place in Jerusalem, that will take place at the midway point of the tribulation. And ultimately, that moment in time will be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 13. Turn there with me, if you will. Revelation chapter 13. Many, when studying the book of Revelation, have found great difficulty in understanding its interpretation. They read the symbolism that is used within the text, the imagery they see and understand the imagery that is used throughout the text, but then they don't understand how they can correlate then an interpretation and application from it if they don't fully understand what the imagery means that is contained within the book of Revelation. And if you open the Bible for the very first time as a new believer in Jesus Christ and you go to the end because you want to see how it all ends and you begin to read these various chapters, you will be like, what is going on? I guess marijuana was legal in their time also, you know. The problem that many have in interpreting the book of Revelation is their lack of understanding of the Old Testament. Today, many Christians feel like the Old Testament is 
you know, it's, it's irrelevant. We, we really just don't need it anymore. That's such a sad, sad position. They're missing out on so much of the Old Testament. The imagery that is used by John here in the book of Revelation is found throughout the book of Daniel. Daniel gives us the understanding of what these things mean, what they symbolize. And therefore, once you understand what they symbolize in the book of Daniel, you'll understand that he uses the same language in the book of Revelation to help people understand the future events taking place. Now, this takes a little bit of work. A good concordance is needed to go back and forth between Daniel and Revelation to help you understand what these various words mean. And I know that we're going awful fast, but I wanted to give you a big picture uh, summarization of all of this, help you with the vocabulary before we get into some of the specifics. In Revelation chapter 13, two beasts are being described by John. One of the beasts is known as the false prophet. He is the one that seems to appear to precede the Antichrist as his herald. Think of it this way. The false prophet would be like John the Baptist, one who precedes the coming of the Messiah. Now, John the Baptist came before the true Messiah. The false prophet will come before the false prophet, the false Messiah, excuse me the Antichrist. The second beast, of course, is the Antichrist. And let's take a look here as we read through this together. Let's start in verse 11. John says, I then saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds, notice this, was healed. So the first beast of Revelation 13 is speaking of the Antichrist. The second beast of Revelation 13 is the false prophet whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. In the ESV, they use the word it to refer to this beast because they don't assign a gender to it. However, the Greek word that is used here in the original language can easily be translated he. And because the beast is in masculine form in the Greek language, he is appropriate to describe him as. The ESV has chosen not to do that. They are the only ones that have chosen not to do that, uh, unless there's a, a text that I'm unfamiliar with. But I believe that he is more accurate. Because it is clear that they are speaking of an individual, a person, not a system, an organization, or some governmental, uh, you know, collaboration. This is an individual that comes to power that is called the beast. He performs signs and wonders. 
His mortal wound was healed, it says. And the signs that it allows it to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all both great and small, both rich and poor, free and slaved, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy and sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. It is called, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of man, and his number is 666. We'll get into some of those details later. But let us understand that this image being arisen in the Holy of Holies, demanding to be worshipped. Turn back with me to 2 Thessalonians, if you will, quickly. Paul writing to a Gentile church who, that they do not have the understanding of the Old Testament as Jewish individuals do. That's a good point. I believe that the church, those who are saved in Jesus Christ, will be removed before the seven-year period of time. And all who are saved will be removed before the world is plunged into that period of time. Specifically, though, the nation of Israel. The reason that Israel needed to be regathered into her land was to be in her land during this last seven-year period of time. I believe that God is not only dealing with the injustices and the rejection of the Gentile world during the tribulation period, but also is once and for all dealing with finality to the people of the nation of Israel. Daniel chapter 9 begins with Daniel praying and asking the Lord how much longer that they will be in Babylonian captivity. Knowing that Jeremiah had given some dates and Daniel now picks up on that and understands that the time is getting close to the end of their captivity, he begins to pray in the beginning of chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9, God answers that prayer. And he answers it and he says, 77 weeks will transpire. In the Hebrew, that means 77 year periods of time. 69 of those periods of time have already taken place because the Bible tells us very clearly that it, the time started when the king gave Nehemiah the permission to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, to the coming of Messiah, 69 of those seven-year periods have expired. 
But then Messiah shall be cut off, not for himself. And then there will be, the next verse is 26, and it says, a prince from the people who have just been spoken of, this prince in the text is referring to the Antichrist, then he will sign a one a treaty with this people for one week, one seven-year period of time. That seven-year period of time is the period that is detailed for us in Revelations 9, I'm sorry, 6 through 19. There's a gap between them. The gap between these two periods is the period of the, of the church. And I believe that what will take place based on Scripture is that once the church is removed, the Antichrist will then sign that treaty with Israel, throwing the world into that last seven-year period of time, therefore collectively fulfilling the 77-week periods assigned for the judgment of the nation of Israel. Aren't you guys glad you had your coffee before you came? This being said, there's strong Jewish overtones to the book of Revelation because it's dealing with the people of Israel specifically. Not that individuals who are Gentiles don't get saved during that period, they do. However, though, they will then be faced with the reality of pledging their allegiance to the Antichrist by receiving this mark on their hand or on their forehead. If they choose not to, the Bible says that they will be executed. Those who do choose to receive the mark, the Bible tells us that there is no hope for their salvation after that reception. Many people have told me over the years, you know, hey, once I see the rapture, I'll know that Jesus is true and I'll become a Christian. And I like to say to them, listen, if you can't live for him now, how are you going to die for him then? I know we're throwing a lot at you, but you asked for it. No. (laughs) Look with me in verse 4 again of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I don't know how much clearer it can be. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. We're going to be talking about that next time. And then the lawless one will come to be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I love fireworks, but this is going to be a whole lot better. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power, false signs and wonders, 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The judgment of God. Now, for some of you, this might be the first time ever hearing these things and thinking that you'll have to go back online to see if you can find another church next week. (laughs) These things are in the Bible for a reason. Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends, and all that the Father has revealed to me, I will reveal to you. He's telling us what's going to happen before it happens. He's telling us that these things are going to transpire, but he has also previously told us that for those who are in Christ, we will be removed before the Antichrist can rise to power. And I'll show you and demonstrate that for you next week. I would encourage you to read the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation tonight before you go to bed. (laughs) And let me know what kind of dreams you have after that. The crises that we see in our world today are precursors to the end. Let us be clear that what we are seeing before us is an upheaval of our society as we know it. People want to change things. People believe that today we can construct a better constitution for our nation that more accurately uh, includes all the diversity of our nation than what was written some 244 years ago. Do you know that when Thomas Jefferson began to pen those things, he was 33 years old. When I was in Washington last, I had the privilege of seeing in the uh, Smithsonian Jefferson's personal library. It was the most fascinating thing I ever saw. And the, the, uh, the lady who was giving the tour believes that Jefferson read every single one of those books. There were over 6,000 of them. And he had every type of subject that you can imagine. You see, I believe that the success, the fruitfulness of the Constitution is a direct result of it being rooted and grounded in Judeo-Christian worldview. And you and I today are reaping the benefits for that. I believe every American citizen should have the full weight of every right that the Constitution of the United States of America affords them. But that's not what we're seeing wanted in our country today. They believe that they can come up with something better. They tried it in a country called Chaz that then changed its name to CHOP and now is no longer. When the police finally went in, they just kind of dissipated. It was complete and utter anarchy, and it took the death of three more, at least three, uh, two, if not three more individuals before they went in and separated that. 
There are academic elites that are trying to tell us that they can formulate a better constitution. And yet, we are still a nation under a constitution that is 244 years old, and we are still surpassing every nation in the entire world. Go and discover how many constitutions France has had in the last 100 years. And they believe that they can bring an utopia, a society, about through the reconstruction of a constitution. There won't be any type of real prosperity and unity and, um, and, 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 and grace and mercy if God is not included in it all. I hope that the Lord brings about in our nation a true urgency of the church to repent, first and foremost. That we as Christians start getting untangled from the world. We start reconsidering the necessity of our relationship with Him, surrendering our whole life to Him. I pray that God will heal our land in the wake of that repentance, bringing revival back to the church. As Greg Laurie had stated, he believes that revival is needed in the church and a spiritual awakening is needed in our nation. The more and more I see of the individuals depicted in these different videos and so forth, at first I was angry and frustrated. And then I began to hear them speak and talk and my heart started to break. They have no idea which way is up. And that easily could have been me if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. So I began to pray. And asking God to work in these people's lives to show them who He is and how great He is and how awesome He is. Because it's only going to get worse for those who live here. For you and I, this is the worst it's ever going to get who are in Christ. And every time I see those fireworks, I think one of the reasons that I'm so mesmerized by them is because of the various colors and shapes and forms. And I just think of those incredible descriptions of the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5. The vast colors and the array of things. And if I can be mesmerized by these fireworks, just think about how mesmerized we're going to be when we stand before Him in His kingdom. And at that moment... My only desire will be this, to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's all I want to hear at that moment. I love our nation, but I worship my God. And it's okay to do both. But I'll tell you, I believe that it's time for we as Christians to stand up. We can no longer be passive. I'm not talking about being aggressive unnecessarily. I'm not talking about being rude or offensive or belligerent. I'm talking about standing up boldly for the truth. There's so many lies going about today. Nobody knows who or what to believe any longer. And you and I as Christians know the truth, have the truth, and can share the truth with them. If they receive it or not, that's between them and God. But we need to be the vehicle of that truth. 
We need to remind people of the incredible freedom that these individuals operated under for the last two and a half months. The Constitution afforded them that freedom until they crossed the line and began to uh, hurt people and destroy property and loot and riot. It's up to us now, folks. I'll just say that we were here in this church 12 years ago at least. Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong. We showed a video describing and demonstrating the communist manifestos that were being adopted by academia and coming and playing out in our political arena. Marxism and other world's views contrary to biblical Christianity and a Christian worldview. Twelve years later, everything that we have said that people simply wrote off as being conspiracy theory is now front and center. I mean, there's no ambiguity anymore. We know exactly where these people are coming from. We need to stand up. You know why? Because we've got kids. We've got grandkids. And I want my child and my grandchild to be able to enjoy the same freedoms that our forefathers afforded me, that men and women died to preserve for me, I want her and her children to be able to enjoy those same freedoms here in the United States of America. There are times to pray, but like God said to Moses, there's also times to get up and start doing. 